Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. In John chapter 12, Jesus has just done a miracle in chapter 11. It's, he's just raised Lazarus from the dead. And I, I think you just have to realize the impact of that. So many high religious officials were there watching that happen. This isn't just hearsay. It isn't something they, they said happened. This is, uh, there's, there's a, there was a crowd of some of the top religious officials in, the, in, the, in Jerusalem and the, in the nation sitting there at a very high-level funeral. And he comes up and he says, Lazarus, here now. And out comes the guy out of the tomb who's been buried for, for four days. Uh, and uh, that just did it. And many of these religious leaders now begin to, they actually, John will say, they, they went away and, and followed him. In other words, they left their posts They left their assignments, they left their religious affiliations with whatever particular group they were, and they became his disciples. This became virtually untenable for for Caiaphas and and his group. Please keep in mind, the high priest at the moment is, is, is very corrupt. This is not a real high priest. This is a family that purchased the rights to this from the Romans. So you can't, this isn't the Israel's high priest, it's just Think of it as a politician. And, uh, well, don't do that. I didn't mean to. I, it's, I, you know what I'm saying. They're, they're there politically. They're not there religiously. So, so Caiaphas says, we, we got to kill him. In fact, we got to kill Lazarus because Lazarus became a big draw. I mean, everybody wants to know, what'd you see on the other side? You know? I mean, wouldn't you ask him that? I, I would if you didn't. Um, tell us what happened, you know? Uh, so people are just pouring out to see Lazarus. That's the environment. But in the, in the midst of that, something remarkable happened. Jesus was at a dinner, and Mary, Mar- Lazarus' brother, came up, and she took a, a vial, uh, a, an alabaster container of pure nard, and which is a, a, a plant from northern India, the oil of it, which is this beautiful perfume. And she, she took the thing, and she snapped the neck of it, and she poured it over his head. You, know, you've got to, you imagine that, that perfume drizzling down his beard. And she poured it over his feet. And then she washed his feet, wiped them with her hair, wiped the oil off with her hair. The value of that uh, alabaster vial was probably $50,000. Uh, it, it is 300 denarii, is, jo- is uh, Judas's uh, assessment of it. And a denarius was a, was a day's wage for an average worker. So 300 times an average worker's daily income. I would guess, what, thirty dollars to $50,000, maybe, maybe more. Uh, it, it's quite a lot of money. I think, I, you say, what, what is that perfume? I mean, what, who's, who's running around with $50,000 worth of perfume? That, that's a good question. Thank you for asking. I... <laughs> I don't think Mary would take the lid off, you know, and, and, and do this every so often. Like, how do you like it? Um, 
who has $50,000 worth of perfume? What's that for? I think I know. I think it's burial perfume. You see, when you, when you die in Israel, and you die in that culture, there's no refrigeration, there's nothing else. You bury immediately. That day, the person is to be buried. So when it comes time to bury, if you're going to anoint them with oil and, and perfumes and all of the spices, you have to have them on hand. They have to be available. And so I think there was one for each of them. I think, I think Lazarus already used his, and I think Mary took hers. And she took that and broke it and poured it over him to anoint him for his burial. When she did that, Judas was standing there. And Judas reacted very oddly. He was angry. He was furious over the waste of money. I'll, show, I'll, I'll read that to you. He, he complained, why didn't you take the money and, and, and sell this thing? Why waste it on Jesus? When you could have sold it and we could have given the money to the beggars. That's the word he uses. Could have given the money to the beggars. Why'd you do that? Something's gone wrong in his heart. And that's what I want to look at today. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you come and open our eyes? Lord, ultimately, we're going to watch Judas and we're going to watch others and we're going to ask Father about their hearts. But we ultimately ask you to look at ours. That we might love you that our priorities might be in order, that we might follow you and let you set our priorities and not use you for ours. Come, Holy Spirit, and grace me that I'd let your word speak. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here we go. I'll start at John 12, verse 1. I'll go down to verse 13. Therefore, six days before the Passover... Uh, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume, a pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus. John doesn't mention the hair, but the other Gospels do. Uh, and wiped his feet with her hair, I mean, uh, over his hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, you can only imagine. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor, the poor? Now he said this not because he was concerned about poor, the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Jesus there, therefore said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The large crowd of the Jews, and I'll just say it every time, um, when it says Jews like that, it's not talking about the Jewish people at large. It's talking about the religious leaders. You're probably talking about the top levels of, of Pharisees. You're talking about some of the priests. You're talking about uh, temple authorities. And then learned that he was there, and they, came, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests, this is the Caiaphas, it's actually his father-in-law, who's really the power, Annas, behind, uh, planned to put Lazarus to death also. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away, see the going away, and were believing in Jesus. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, 
when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Uh, what day is this? Do you recall? What, what are we? We're seeing Palm Sunday. Yes, this is on a Sunday. It's the next day after the Sabbath is what I think John means. And then Jesus, I just want to read those next two verses because this is his response, and I'll comment another time. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey. I will just say this, that uh, they're saying, rise up as the Messiah. He takes the colt of a donkey and says, no. That's what, that, that's what was going on. This is a clash. This is not a parade. This is a clash going on of, of agendas. It's the most natural thing in the world. People turn to God because they need something. And they want him to use his power to help them. That's actually the motivating factor behind most of the world's religions. And has been throughout human history. People do something or sacrifice something or chant something until their God or impersonal spiritual force treats them favorably. And history has shown that humans will do just about anything. No matter how horrible or costly. To persuade whatever they call God to help them. Selfishness is obviously a main motivation behind this sort of religious behavior, but selfishness isn't the only reason people relate to the spiritual realm this way. Sometimes people pursue God, gods, or good vibrations on someone else's behalf. Fear or anger can also drive people to seek for spiritual help. But regardless of why people came, the underlying nature of the relationship between humans and the spiritual world remains the same. Pleasing God or a godlike energy until he, she, or it gives us what we want or need. It's very much like a business transaction. We pay for something to get something. Do you follow? This is, this is religion. Now, you, you might ask the question, does that ever come into Christianity? Oh, it sure does. In fact, it is a business transaction. And it is, it is being used all the time. Uh, we pay for something to get, to get something. You know what the Latin is for that? Quid pro quo. Yeah. And this, this before that. You pay me this, I give you that. You send in your $1,000 love gift. You sow your seed into this ministry. I'm going to pray for you, and God is going to give you a hundredfold back on that money. Now, I'm, I'm going to just hold it up because it is a raw example of this kind of transaction. If you do this, if you do this, if you pray this, if you say this, if you do this enough, you'll get this. And so we bring our, this, this, this raw motivation that says, how do I get the spiritual realm to give me what I want now? Do you see this? I'm asking for spiritual powers, whether I, no matter which religion I believe in, and I'm asking it to come and give me blessings, help, assistance, prosperity, health, whatever it is. I'm looking for this. I'm just saying that's the motivation. There's a raw motivation there, and it's across the board. And it has been brought into Christianity and just simply varnished with Christian religious terms, but it's the same thing as any place else. 
The problem with approaching God, the God of the Bible this way isn't so much that we ask him for help. After all, he is the source of all things. The problem is we only ask him for help. We don't seem to want to be with him as a person. We're content to go on with our daily lives until there is a problem. We get religious when the crisis pass, until the crisis passes and then slide back into our routine. But the God of the Bible created us for relationship. He made us in his own image, in the hope that we would freely choose to become his children. Here's how John stated it in the opening to his gospel. Would you read this out loud with me? He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become, here it is, children of God. Even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let me just, let me point out some things. He was in the world and the world was made, say, through him. Here's an important thing. From the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. Did you follow that? Jesus is the word because the Father initiates the fa and the Lord Jesus is the one who speaks. He is the one through whom the Father has spoken to us and spoken. He is, he's the, he's the, he's the, it's through the Son. So, so John says, he comes into a world that he spoke into existence and the world didn't recognize him. And then he says he came to his own, meaning... Israel, I guess, or Nazareth, or even his own family, you, you name it across the board. No one received him, he says, though that isn't the case. A number did, and so then he qualifies and says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right, and what did he give the right to? To become, say, children of God. That's what this is all about. The Father wants children. Not, ser not little servants. This isn't, a, this isn't some ant farm where God is sort of raising up these little creatures. He has literally made us in his image so that we can be his beloved children. We can talk to him, know him, love him, and he can talk to us, know us, and love us. Love just, love just doesn't, and he of course he, there was a love affair with the father and the son. But this great heart of God's wants to love more. It's just that. It's no, no more complicated than that. He, to become children of God. And then he says, even to those who believe in his name, and he, in other words, believe what Jesus did and proclaimed, who were born, and then he goes, not of blood, and others, not of an ancestry, nor of the will of the flesh, I would take that to be desire, nor of the will of man, in other words, people who decide to have kids. But they were born, what? Of God. God takes when you believe in his son and he, you become born. He changes you. There comes a spiritual change. Your spirit changes. There's a miracle that goes on and you now become a child of God. Hallelujah. This God, the God of the Bible, the real God, wants to love us and he wants us to love him more than we love anything or anyone else. And for that to happen, we must desire to be with him more than we desire anything else. 
We must hate the things that separate us from him and long for a way to draw close to him. Judas Iscariot is traditionally portrayed as the embodiment of evil, almost subhuman, as if a normal human being could never do what he did. Indeed, he became satanically possessed in the process of betraying Jesus. Let me stop there. The Bible doesn't say he became demonically possessed. It literally says Satan entered him. It says several times Satan entered him. And and then Jesus calls him at one point the son of, remember? Perdition is the word. I I still don't know what that means, but I looked it up in the Greek. I I know what it's supposed to mean. It's spiritual ruin. Now, that name of this man in whom to whom uh, Satan himself, not a demon, Satan himself entered, is, that term is used for one other person in the Bible. Who is it? The Antichrist. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, you'll find he is called, the Antichrist is called son of perdition. Because he, again, is exactly that. He's a man. Upon, and, and it says, Satan will leave heaven, and he will come, and he will inhabit the body of a human being. That becomes the Antichrist. He is also the son of perdition. So when, 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 uh, boy, when, when Judas stepped into this mess, he really picked up a problem. Jesus warned him that he was becoming, quote, a devil on one occasion. That was warning, this is where this is going, Judas. And referred to him as the son of perdition after he left the upper room to report their location to Caiaphas. But what apparently motivated Judas to follow Jesus in the first place was not different from what motivated the cheering crowds that lined the road to Bethany or even some of the other disciples. The problem arose in Judas' heart when Jesus explained his priorities and Judas refused to change his. At that point, he became deeply disappointed in Jesus. And that disappointment gradually turned into anger, while in the other disciples, it merely turned to sadness. Today, let's examine our own priorities. Now, let me describe for you something about Judas. His name is odd. Uh, In in Judaism at that time, you don't have a first name and a last name, you know, like like I'm Steve Shell and he's Judas Iscariot. That That isn't how that works. In that case, Judas would be named the son of his father. So, and we know his father's name. John actually mentions it twice. I give you the references there. His, name, his father's name is Simon. And oddly, his father is also called Simon Iscariot. Now, that just isn't how things work. And so Judas should be named Judas Ben Simon. But he's not. He's Judas Iscariot, as is his father. Simon Iscariot. You say, well, what's Iscariot mean? And I, I've, I've asked and you, you know, people, and I've asked, and they say, well, the, the Hebrew word is ish for a man. And they say, well, it must be ish karyoth, uh, means uh, a man from the town of Karyoth. Cool, where's Karyoth? Well, we don't know. But there must have been one. Really? I've asked in Israel. Well, where's, I said, where's Karyoth? Must have been one, maybe. Here's, here, here, and, this, and what I'm saying right now, I am not the only one to have seen, and, and you go back to some of the, uh, the uh, commentators, they have seen it, but they don't, nobody quite knows what to do with it. 
It could also mean ish, and then there's the word sicarii. The sicarii, the word means knife men. And it was a group, it was a group, it was, it was a subset of the, of the zealots. Remember, Jesus has in his disciples one called Simon the Zealot. Let me talk about zealots for a minute. Zealots were the, were the insurrectionists. They were the guerrilla warfare, like the French underground. Uh, they, are, they were the group who resisted the Romans. And near to Bethany, actually, I mean, uh, uh, not Bethany, near to Bethsaida, up, up north in the Galilee, if you go up into the foothills there, and I've never gotten there, and I still am trying to get the bus to go there, but it's really out of the way, and up a little windy thing. Yeah, well, I could, we'd have to drop something else, but I'll, I'm, I'm finagling. Um, is, a, is a place called Gamla. And Gamla, at Gamla, they found the earliest synagogue they've ever found. And the Bible says that Jesus went to every synagogue in the region. And, the, and Gamla was a place for the zealots. The, whole, the town was a hotbed of zealots. In fact, in Masada, a whole bunch of them were. Uh, when, the, when the Romans attacked in 66, uh, they, they, went, they went to Gamla. They surrounded it. 5,000 men, women, and children jumped to their deaths. I mean, you don't even hear about that. You hear about Masada, where 900 took their lives. But 5,000, I mean, people would hold their children and jump. It's way up in a, on, a, on, a, on a cliff edge. They would jump to their deaths. I mean, what a thing. So this, is, this is this town of zealots. I think Simon, Simon the zealot probably came from there. But here's what I think. I think Judas, and I think his father too, it was Judas the Sicarii. Then I'll tell you what the knife men did. They, they were the subset. They were the violent edge. And what they would do, and this, uh, they, would, they would have these sharp knives, and they would carry them in their robes. And uh, they would, would come up to a, to a Roman leader or a, 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 what they would consider to be a Jewish traitor. And they'd come in the busy day, right in the height of the day, when people are all crowds, and the crowds are shoving and pushing, and there's the noise and everything. And they would just sidle up beside the person as, as they're walking, take the knife and just stick it. And they knew how to just kill them right on the spot. And the fellow would just drop, and they would just drop back into the crowd. And you say, was that rare? As time went on there, about one or two a day in Jerusalem. This was a plague. So you've got these... Sicarii. You say, well, what's he doing in Jesus' group? I think, now what is their motivation? Get these Romans out of here. Get our land back. We want our revolution. We want, we want Israel to be a Jewish nation again. We want our people. We want the blessings that are promised to us. And I think he's what it was somebody heard Jesus. And he said, that man's that he's got he's got the goods. This guy could be our leader. This guy could be our Messiah. This guy has the power. This guy has the grace. He could do this. And he followed him. And he became his disciple. But as time went on, Jesus kept frustrating him. He kept talking about what? Dying. It drove him nuts. He couldn't get him to stop it. Quit talk. And the others felt the same. Remember, remember Peter? Takes him aside after Jesus went through this, this whole routine about, I'm going to die, three days rise again. Peter takes him aside and says, stop it. You're not going to die. And Jesus had something to say. Get thee behind me, Satan. 
This is a real clash. This is a big deal. You got to understand this. This is that's how I put it together. Judas Iscariot presents quite a problem. How could a man who spent so much time with Jesus remain an unbeliever? For years, he traveled with him as one of the 12. He listened to him teach. He observed his character and watched him perform countless miracles. He himself ate from the loaves and fish. He was in the boat when Jesus walked on the water. He stood nearby when sick people were healed and demonized people were delivered. He was even present when Lazarus walked out of the tomb. Yet his heart remained unmoved. It had not swelled with faith. Instead, it had grown increasingly angry at Jesus. John doesn't mention what Judas did after Mary poured the perfume over Jesus. But Matthew and Mark do. They reveal that this was the event that prompted Judas to go to the temple officials and bargain with them for a sum of money to, in order to, to betray Jesus. But John provides here two pieces of information about Judas that the other Gospels, Matthew and Mark, don't. First, he tells us that Judas was the disciple who carried the small bag or box that held the gifts people gave to support Jesus' ministry. And second, that he was a thief who regularly stole from the money entrusted to him. Judas' angry response to Mary in that tender moment may provide a clue as to why his heart grew hard. He loved money. Apparently, he became a disciple because he thought Jesus was the Messiah and that he had come to set up God's glorious kingdom on earth. Let me stop for a second. I, you say, how could he see those miracles and not believe? I think he did believe. How could you see them and not? He believed this, Jesus has the power. He has the power, and in his mind, to do what I want him to do. Jesus has the power to do what I want him to do, and that's set up this kingdom. If, if he just will get his head straight, Jesus can do what I need him to do here. I don't, you can't possibly watch that stuff and not be moved. Nobody could. As one of his close followers, Judas expected that he would naturally be given an exalted position in that kingdom. But as time went on, Jesus made it abundantly clear he was not seeking an earthly kingdom, but intended to die as a sacrifice for human sin. And that was not why Judas chose to follow him. So he felt betrayed and grew angry, even though Jesus had never promised him anything else. In his mind, Jesus was foolishly passing up a tremendous opportunity to deliver Israel from its enemies and bring great prosperity to them all. Then, with all that frustration building in him, when he watched Mary waste all that valuable perfume in an act that symbolized Jesus' burial, something snapped inside of Judas. Judas suggested that the perfume be sold and the money from the sale be given to the beggars. The word he used, beggars, can be applied to poor people in general, but literally it means those who crouch or cringe by the wayside. Jesus' response to him was not a rejection of the idea that they should be generous to people who are in desperate need. Remember him saying, the poor you have always with you, but you don't always have me. In fact, it appears that one of Jesus, Judas' responsibility as the person who carried the purse was to distribute funds to beggars on behalf of Jesus and the disciples. What Jesus was trying to explain to him by saying, for the beggars you always have with you, but you do not always have me, was that the season in which people could openly honor him was about to end. Human need is always present, and the word of God constrains believers to divide their bread with the hungry. But caring for human need 
does not replace our responsibility to lavishly worship God. He deserves our best, which is why Mary was pouring out one of their family treasures onto the head and feet of Jesus. On Sunday of that final week, the day after the Sabbath, crowds of pilgrims poured into Jerusalem to prepare for the Passover. And when they heard that Jesus was coming toward the city, they rushed across the Kidron Valley and up the Mount of Olives on the road that leads to Bethany. They hoped he would announce that he was the Messiah and that the glorious promises concerning these, the last days were about to begin. Before we describe what happened that day, we should note that Jesus actually made three different visits to the temple during that final week. This is important to kind of have in your mind. When you're reading the different Gospels, you're going, what's going on here? Well, I'll tell you. The first one, which we are reading about now there in John, took place on Sunday. And during that day, Jesus triumphantly rode into the city, went to the temple, looked around, and then returned to Bethany. His second visit to the temple took place on Monday. On that day, he went to the temple and cleansed it of those selling animals and changing money. Let me tell you what he did on the way into town that day. He saw a fig tree. And he went looking for fruit, and it had nothing but leaves. And he cursed the fig tree and said, may nothing grow on you. Now, why did he do that? I've explained it to you. What does the fig tree symbolize? Church leadership in particular, of Israel's and Israel's church, it's the big tree. The fig tree is the big tree. Say that. <laughs> big tree is the big tree. There you go. Thank you so much. Um, so, he, so here's the Messiah. He has arrived suddenly. He is now going to inspect his nation. He's going to inspect the temple leadership. And how is it doing? Has it provided fruit for God? And he looks among the leaves and no fruit is there. He will now, he has just the day before arrived and looked around. He's looked over the temple. Is it producing fruit or just revenue for the temple leadership? It's not producing faith. It's not producing repentance. It isn't doing the work of God and preparing the people for their God. It isn't giving God fruit. It's giving people revenue. And just as he then curses that tree, he's now about to arrive to the temple and cleanse it. And he will announce and then in the next, well, the next day, here we go. His second visit to the temple took place on Monday. He went to the temple and cleansed it of those selling animals and changing money. That was the second time he did that cleansing, by the way. And that evening, he returned again to Bethany. His third visit to the temple was on Tuesday. And during that visit, the religious leaders confronted him and his disciples asked questions about the destruction of the temple. Just as the fig tree had died, the temple now would be torn down for it had no fruit. That night and the next, he and his disciples spent the night on the Mount of Olives. All right. Doesn't want to put the family at risk. I believe Judas planned to use Jesus' power to achieve his own desire, which was money in particular. The miracles Jesus performed surely convinced him that God, Jesus had the necessary power to become the nation's Messiah, but Jesus kept insisting that he was going to die. And that deeply frustrated Judas and the rest of the disciples. The other disciples were confused but by Jesus' insistence that he must die. But as, they, as the years passed, they resolved to follow him anyway because they loved him. And he promised them heaven. This makes Thomas look better. Remember Thomas? We have just seen Thomas. Uh, when Jesus says he's there at, at the, down at the Jordan River and he says, let's go to Bethany. 
which is in the danger zone, Thomas' wonderful comment was, let's go and die with him. Why would he say that? Does, does, he, does he get it at all? No, he doesn't get it either. It, not, none of them understand. Why does he keep talking about dying? Stop it. But they loved him. Jo Thomas loves him. He's willing to die with him, even though he thinks he's confused. <laughs> this is pathetic. The whole thing's a mess. But Jesus pulls it out in the end. You know, we're here. So, so, so Thomas and the others go, yeah, we're all going to die. Okay. And, and, and one of the gospels says, as he went up to Jerusalem, he was in the front and everybody else trailing behind him. It does. It describes it. So Jesus is going, come on. Come on. Come on. And up they went and they're following him. But at least they haven't grown bitter. When Jesus disappoints you, when he doesn't use his power for what you had wanted, will you grow bitter and turn against him? Judas grew bitter until that moment came when he finally realized that there would be no changing Jesus' mind. He was determined to die. That happened when Mary poured out the perfume and Jesus said, she's preparing me for my burial. The hope within Judas that Jesus was going to fulfill his priorities died that instant. He must have decided that Jesus was a fool who was going to waste the opportunity to become the Messiah. Obviously, he felt no need for forgiveness. All that talk about Jesus being the Passover lamb and the bread of heaven meant nothing to him. He didn't consider himself to be a desperate sinner. And his greatest desire wasn't to be with God forever. His great desire was to have a pleasant life here. The people in the crowd that lined the road to Bethany that day were just like Judas. They too were convinced by the miracles, especially Lazarus, that Jesus had the power to be the Messiah. They too wanted him to use his power to give them what they desired, a free and prosperous nation. That's what they're cheering about. Even some of the disciples tried to make Jesus fulfill their priorities. Salome, the mother of James and John, the, the author of the gospel, and the sister of Mary, Jesus' mother, with the full support of her sons, came up to Jesus just days before he arrived in Bethany and said this, Command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. Let me, did you hear what I just said? Probably went by you like, what was that? Salome is Mary's sister. This woman is Jesus' aunt, his physical aunt. He's genetically from Mary. This is his physical aunt. So Salome shows up just before he's about to go up to Bethany this last time. And I'll show you what he just said before that in a minute. And she says, these are your cousins. Did you realize that? John and James are Jesus' first cousins. These are your cousins. And when you come into your kingdom, put one on your right and one on your left. Give them the biggest posts in the kingdom. Now, is she talking about... Is she talking about in the future when you come again and set up? She is not. 
She doesn't believe in the resurrection. None of them believe in the resurrection. Uh, and they prove that. Not one thinks he's going to come alive from the dead. Nobody's got that picture. She's talking about now. All this talk. Now, what did he just say? Check this out. Just before she said that, he said this. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify. And on the third day, he will be raised up, just as surely as those disciples did not believe he would rise again on the third day, they did not believe he had to die. I suppose they think he's deluded. He's a sweet man. God seems to like him a whole lot. He's got a lot of power. We don't understand. He just, why does he keep talking? I don't know. What does he mean by this? We don't know. This, do you see it? Why don't they know? They don't like it. Now, you and I don't do this, but way back, thousands of years ago, people would turn off when they don't like what they're hearing. Yeah. So they would just, what? I didn't hear that. Uh, but now we, we've evolved, uh, you know, forward so, so well. Something strange is at work here. Why were so many people so confused? Why didn't they believe him? There is only one possible answer. It's not that Jesus' words don't make sense. It's that people didn't like what they were hearing. We're watching a clash of, between priorities. They wanted Jesus to use his power to meet their desires here and now. But Jesus was determined to pursue his priorities, which was to pray, pay for human sin so that we could become the children of God. Consciously or unconsciously, each of us chooses our own priorities. They're the goals we put at the top of the list. They reflect what we value the most. The prize we believe is worth living for. These are the things we hope will fulfill our deepest desires. Jesus called them our treasures and challenged us to question them. Listen, why don't you read this with me? Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, he's asking us, what's your treasure? Or actually, where's your treasure? Are you going to pursue money, pleasure, and safety here in this life? Or are you going to use your days and resources to prepare for heaven? Do you want to be rich or take people with you into eternity? It's a matter of priorities. Below are four choices every one of us must make. They are unavoidable. Each choice is revealed by the way we answer a simple question. And as we review these choices, it soon becomes obvious that Jesus answered them one way. And Judas, the crowd, and even some of the disciples before the resurrection answered them another way. The question before us today is, how do you and I answer them? Choice number one, would you say here, here or heaven? Here. Which is more important? 
Does this world seem more real than the next? Some people have spiritual eyes that can see the future. They really believe in life after death. So they use the opportunities and resources they have here to prepare for that future. They understand that their, bio, their biological life and even the planet itself in its present condition will pass away. But the next level of existence lasts forever. Abraham and Sarah were such people, which is why, though wealthy, they lived like strangers and exiles on the earth. That's, that's a statement right out of Hebrews 11, you recall. The, the author of Hebrews says this. He says, Abraham and Sarah, if they had wanted a city here on earth, if they wanted this, they could have returned. Meaning, go back to Ur of the Chaldees, where he, they came from, a wealthy, powerful family in that town. If they wanted money, rich, rich uh, safety, they could have done it. But they left that. Abraham left all of that. And he left, his, and his wife went with him. Come on, you got to hand it to Sarah. He says, God's called us to leave and go. And she says, where? He says, uh, he's, he says I don't know. He, he'll tell us when we arrive. I've been on camping trips like that. <laughs> and, and she says, I'll go with you. She didn't have to. I'll go with you. And those two headed out, left, leaving all of that. The, the author of Hebrews says, he says, if they'd wanted a city here on earth, they could have had it. They could have returned, is what he said. But he said they didn't. He said they wanted a city not made with hands, whose builder and maker is God. They wanted heaven. Abraham was wealthy. You've got to understand, this is a tribal chief, a, a, a powerful tribal chief, and God's blessing him left and right. So he's got animals you know, whether it be sheep or oxen or goats, who knows, you know, camels. He's got them as far as the eye can see. He's a powerful tribal chief. If he wants to put together a, a, a military, a, a militia, go get his nephew, he can, he can put 300 mounted men on camels and head off and, and capture these guys who took his nephew and rout them. He's a powerful tribal chief. He's a power to contend with. He could care less. He tended it. He led it well. He was a responsible patriarch. He was a good, solid leader. But it wasn't here. What was here? He had the eye. He got it. There's a heaven and there's a God and he's real. And I want him more than I want any of this. I'll care for this as he's given it to me, but I love him. And that's what made Abraham great. It was not about, it was the, the, the blessings of Abraham are not you too can be rich like Abraham. That's not the point. The blessing of Abraham is that he became righteous by faith. That's the gift of Abraham. And you and I can have the blessings of Abraham. We can be righteous by faith, have God in our lives, and, have, and, and walk a walk like Abraham walked. Choice number two, help or forgiveness. Would you say that? Which do you or I need more? Do we think of ourselves as good, a good person who may have made a few mistakes or as, a, or as a selfish, rebellious, or independent person who's done some really bad things? When Jesus tried to tell people he came to die for their sin, most stopped listening. Right, right there, that reference I give you, he had, he had just fed 
um, probably 10 to 15,000 people with, with uh, five little barley loaves and two fish. He'd done an incredible miracle, and the huge crowds were around him. Uh, this was a, day, a few days later. It was in Capernaum. And then he starts talking this way. Except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have none of me. Now, this is the day or so before Passover. So everything's Passover right now. In the Passover meal, you have, uh, you have this bread, and the bread will represent the body of the Passover lamb. And the, you'll have a, you have four cups, actually. But the cup will represent the blood of the Passover lamb, in effect. You, by faith, you're laying hold of the Passover lamb again. And so in that context, he says, I'm the Passover lamb. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. You must believe in what I'm about to do, the violent death I'll do for you. How did they respond? So many people left. They all just went, ugh. They, and they, they came for loaves and fish. They wanted miracles. They had demonized relatives. But they came to get something from him. They didn't feel a need for forgiveness for their sins. They didn't feel like, like, like somebody needs, we need an atonement. That wasn't the issue. They want stuff from God. You follow this? Because this is how we treat him too, very often. I mean, this, this, this issue, God will ultimately bring us to the point of, do you love me? Do you love me or do you want my stuff? Which is it? He will always come back, ultimately bring us to that point. The minute they left, so many people left him that he turns to his disciples and he says, what? You going to leave me too? And their answer was a powerful, where would we go? <laughs> you alone have the words of eternal life. You talk about heaven and we, we believe it, whatever it is. He said it's the sick who need a physician. And by sick, he meant people who knew they were sinners and who would understand that they would be judged by God. So they longed for his mercy. Those who don't consider themselves to be sinners are confused by all the talk about Jesus dying on the cross. Inside, they're saying, but why? I'm not that bad. Choice number three, things or people. Would you say that? Which am I spending my life pursuing? Which do I value the most? It takes energy and time to acquire things, just as it takes energy and time to reach people for God. Everyone has to work to provide the basic necessities of life. But after that, our priorities determine how we invest what's left over. Depending on our choice, we'll end up with more things or people. In Luke, he says it another way. He says, he says, no one can serve two masters. He says, you'll either serve one or you'll serve the other. Remember this? And what were the two masters he said you had to choose between? God or mammon. And mammon represents, it was the, it was the Aramaic for, the, for a particular God, of wealth. Either you're going to pursue money or you're going to pursue God. Now, as I said, you got, everybody's got to go to work. I mean, we've got we to feed ourselves. We've got children to care for. I mean, you can't just not do anything. That's not his point. But the point is, what is the passion of your life? What do you do? If you're going to spend your time thinking, studying, uh, planning, dreaming about how do I get rich, it will take all the energy you have, and you'll have nothing left over for planning, 
dreaming, studying, investing in how do I reach people? How can I make my life matter for eternity? You'll do one or the other. You cannot do both. There's a choice there to be made. Now, may I say something? Because I'm going to say it at the end, too. Over here, the, or the person, no, no, this is the wrong side. This person, the person who says they're going to give themselves uh, to serving the Lord and, and people. God says, if you will seek first my kingdom and it's righteous, my righteousness, what will he do for you? I'll provide all you need. I'll house you. I'll clothe you. Uh, you focus on my stuff. I'll focus on yours. It's a, it, I just need to say that side. This is not some, you're, and you're going to be, be up, or, you know, wrapped in a robe with a begging bowl on a street. It's not what it happens. But it's here. These things are priorities. It's, it's choices we make. It's, our, it's what do we love the most. Choice number four, God's hand or face. Would you say that? Do we want God to do things for us? Or do we want God? Do we use him or love him? Is our deepest longing to someday be with him and see him face to face? Because if it's not, sooner or later, we too will become disappointed with God. A few unanswered prayers or unexpected crises can turn us bitter as well. You see this? If I'm in a quid pro quo, if I'm in a relationship with him that says, I'll, I'll serve you as long as you do these things for me. I promise you, you won't make it to the end. Life will deal you a blow. Things, a prayer will go unanswered to your thinking. And you'll grow bitter. And people do this. In fact, you want to talk to, you want to look at what most people who call themselves atheists, they're angry people who God failed in their minds. I did my part. I sowed my seed. I gave my tithe. I prayed my prayer. I did, I, I said it over and over and over and over and over again. Whatever it was, I asked for help and you didn't give it. You could have helped and you didn't. And they grow bitter. And Judas betrayed him. And so does atheism. You know what atheism really is? It's a way of killing God. I won't believe in you. It's just like cocking a gun and putting it in his head. I'll show you. You don't answer my prayer. You let that happen to my family. I'll show you. I won't believe in you. In fact, I'll talk bad about you everywhere I go. That's all it is. It's a war. Just like Judas' war. Asaph... The psalmist described his own struggle with this choice in Psalm 73. He said he watched unbelievers prosper while he was facing hardship. And he grew bitter toward God. He describes it. He says bitter. But when he said he went into the sanctuary of God and worshipped and strengthened by the Holy Spirit, he changed his priorities. He realized there is nothing greater than knowing God. He said, whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you, I desire nothing on earth. Would you, would you say that? Let's say that, uh, Asaph's words. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Do you hear him shift his priorities? He called God his portion forever. And said, the nearness of God is my good. Let's say that. The nearness of God is my good. In worship, Asaph changed his answer to this question. He chose God's face rather than his hand. 
response. It's a matter of priorities. It isn't that God doesn't want to bless us here in this life. Or work miracles to help us. Or generously provide physical resources. He does. But those are not his highest priorities. And they can't be ours either. The example of Judas is a warning to us that until Jesus' priorities become ours, we're walking on a path that will leave us disappointed and may make us bitter. But when we surrender to the heart of God and value the things he values and see this world from his perspective, our disappointments cease and our hearts swell with thankfulness. Would you stand with me? You know someone who modeled this choice and did it well? Job. That's what the book of Job is about, you realize? Job is a trophy. There, there was this discussion in heaven between the devil and God, and the devil says, Job only serves you because you make him rich. You take his money away, he'll curse you to your face. Promise. God says, no, he won't. He loves me. Go ahead, test him. The test wasn't God's idea. This wasn't God dealing with it. This was, but he allowed it to show the depth of that man's heart. And did Job curse him? No, he didn't. So the devil comes along and says, well, all right, all right. But if you touch his body, you make him sick. You bring sickness onto the page. Now he'll, he'll abandon you. His wife, meanwhile, is saying, curse God and die. Thank heavens I wasn't married to his wife. I, I got it. I got a different one. She's going, don't you dare. <laughs> Hallelujah. Um, did, did Job curse God? He did not. He complained and had every right to. He said, this is unfair. And it was totally unfair. He did not deserve any of that nonsense. But he wasn't getting what he deserved. He was being tested to the glory of God. Would he abandon God? Would he turn? And I'll tell you, the, the, the great moment came when Job said this. Though he slay me, yet will I serve him. Even if he kills me, I will not renounce God. I want eternal life. I want him. My priorities are him above all. Do you follow this? Because you and I, if that is not settled in our hearts, we too will grow bitter. Life will send you a blow. It'll disappoint you and you'll grow bitter and angry. At God. There ha but when it's settled inside, there's things we don't understand. There's things that can make you sad. But you won't turn on him. In, in your heart, you'll resolve, though he slay me, yet will I serve him. I want him, and he's promised me eternal life. Where would we go, Lord? For you alone have the words of eternal life. He is our healer. He is our provider. We lay hold of his power and see it all the time. I'm going to tell you, though, I'm an old enough man. There's things that I don't understand. There's things that, you know, there's disappointments that will come in my walk with God. There's, there's triumphs and there's valleys. Isn't there? Is there in yours? Then why are you still here? You know, I know why you're still here. Same reason I'm still here. I want him more than I want anything else. The good nearness of God is my good. Our Father, we love you this day. 
And we bring our priorities. We bring the deepest longings and love of our heart. And Lord, if anything creeps in and has creeped in, where we use you rather than love you, where we want your hand and not your face, would you forgive us and would you pluck it out? We repent of it this moment and lay it down. And we say it is your face we want. It is you we want. You have called us to be children of God and there's much that goes on on this troubled planet. We don't understand. But we understand this. That we who believe in your beloved son who came and made a way so that we could come to you. You who call us and make us, actually birth us as children of God. And we long for that. We want that. We receive that now. And that is our greatest good. Children of God in love with you. That's our heart, our God. Come and pluck out any weeds, anything that's grown in there and infested. We pull it out and love you with a pure heart today. In Jesus' powerful name. If you agree with that prayer, would you say amen? Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.